Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store. For Lean's Cape Cod, birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean, inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron, offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade-Grown Bird-Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com. Good morning. Welcome to our show number 636. Well, it might be fair to say that our feeling about insects is complicated. It's hard to find folks who like mosquitoes, for example, or houseflies or cockroaches. But then there are insects like butterflies and bumblebees, and we tend to think of them quite differently. We appreciate many insects because they provide pollination services, for example, and direct sustenance for many species of birds, including most of those in your backyard who find insects on all those beautiful trees and bushes and flowers out there. But there's new evidence that reinforces the notion that where those plants come from is really important. Here's a headline. New research shows that native plants offer more bugs for birds, like Carolina chickadees, for example. As reported by National Audubon, a two-year survey of this bird species around Washington, D.C., connected songbird diets to the plants from which they source their food. The story says that the results clearly support previous work showing that native gardens are packed with caterpillars and other insects during the time when many birds are breeding, finding specifically that Carolina chickadees nested more often in yards with an abundance of native trees than in yards with more introduced species. Among the top performers, oaks, cherries, elms, and maples, because they house the most moth and sawfly larvae, important food sources for birds trying to raise young. University of Delaware entomologist Doug Tallamy is quoted as saying, we're used to thinking of the plants in our yards as decorations. It's wonderful when plants are attractive, he adds, but if they're exotics, such as ginkgo, crepe myrtle, or European privet, all unpalatable to insects, they do not pass along the sun's energy to birds and other wildlife. And he concludes that when it comes to putting invasive plants in your yard, you might as well install a statue. On last week's show, we mentioned the spoon-billed sandpiper in a jocular way as part of our Mystery Bird Contest bonus question. But there's nothing funny about the deep decline of this Asian shorebird, which is now listed as critically endangered, with maybe as few as 100 breeding pairs remaining on the planet. Most researchers believe that two factors are responsible for the spoon-billed sandpiper's population decline. The elimination of migratory stopover habitat, especially in the Yellow Sea region, and subsistence hunting of the birds on the wintering grounds. Please check our Talking Birds Facebook page for a connection to the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds and the work that's being done to try to save this remarkable species from extinction. Extra, extra, read all about it. And here are some of the other stories and videos we have for you on our Facebook page this week. In New Jersey, they're building a giant seven-story cage to prevent more of what's been happening to birds in a Meadowlands landfill. The birds are flying through an invisible flame 
and getting their wings and feathers scorched and singed. Obviously a big issue for birds. In this cage, aims to solve the problem. We have the story from NorthJersey.com. A wildlife rehab center in New England returned a Canada goose to the wild after treating it for a broken leg and lead poisoning. We'll link you to that good news story. And it's time for another Talking Birds book giveaway. This time it's The Narrow Edge, a tiny bird, an ancient crab, and an epic journey by Deborah Kramer. It's a good one. It's about another threatened shorebird, the Red Knot. See our page for details. And those are some of the things we have for you on our Facebook page right now. And that is the sound of our mystery bird, a whole flock of them on the roost, actually. A little preview here of the mystery bird contest that we'll do a little bit later on in the show. And as we did last week, we're going to give away not only a beautiful droll Yankees feeder, but also a bonus prize of a big bag of birds and beans, bird-friendly, delicious, shade-grown coffee. In our mystery bird contest, coming up in a little bit, our mystery bird is a large, mostly white, wading bird of the southeastern swamps where it probes for fish in water up to its belly, holding its bill open until it detects a fish or a frog or a tasty insect. Our bird has black flight feathers and a black tail and answers to the name Baldy. That would be our mystery bird, and that's a preview of our mystery bird contest. Well, we'd like to say a big thank you to new Talking Birds ambassadors, and happy to report we have three new ambassadors to thank this morning, including Jim Pratulipak from Morgantown, West Virginia. Nestled along the banks of the Monongahela River, Jim says he's been birding for only a little more than a year now and has been listening to our show for most of that time. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you, Danielle Poirier from Blackstone, Massachusetts. She says, I work full-time with exotic parrots and macaws at a zoo in Massachusetts. I also work with an African pied crow, red-legged seriema, Eurasian eagle owls, owls, and laughing kookaburra. Though most of my experience is with exotics, I so enjoy listening to this podcast to keep up with news on birding, conservation, research, and policy. Thank you for sharing your perspective and knowledge on all things bird-related. Thank you very much, Danielle. And thank you to Shannon Jones up in Marquette, Michigan, in the western upper peninsula, uh, for becoming a Talking Birds ambassador. And we'd like to congratulate Shannon on her very recent wedding. Best wishes, Shannon, to you and your hubby from all of us here at Talking Birds. Talking Birds listeners, please do consider representing your state, city, or town as a Talking Birds ambassador and hand out some of our info cards to your friends and associates to spread the word about birds and conservation. It's easy to do and easy to sign up for. Just click on the contact button at talkingbirds.com. No G in talking and choose the become an ambassador option. That's the become an ambassador option by the contact button at TalkingBirds.com. Meanwhile, attention Talking Birds listeners in the Boston area. We're very happy to announce that in addition to our live Sunday morning broadcast on WROL 950 AM, you can now also hear Talking Birds on AM 1260, The Buzz, on Saturday mornings from 10 to 10.30. That's Saturday morning, 10 to 10.30 on AM 1260 in Boston.
Still to come on our show today, we'll find out how something we usually associate with whales may help to explain more about how birds find their way to their nesting and wintering grounds when we talk with geophysicist and researcher Dr. Jonathan Hagstrom. Plus, we'll catch up with our man Mike O'Connor in our Let's Ask Mike segment for info about why you may want to offer safflower seed to your backyard birds. And up next, a bird that doesn't feel the need to rush the breeding season is today's featured feathered friend. Presented by Birdwatching Magazine, for more than a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. And now, a poem with our Miss Valerope. When you hear a bird say particularly, you know it's not a chickadee. When it moves as on a roller coaster through the air, like a teeny bopper at a Marshfield Fair. When you see the black cap in its body of yellow, well, you're certain to recognize this cute little fellow. Yes, indeed, by now the ID should be a cinch. Oh, you've got it, my friends. The American goldfinch. Thank you. Well, thank you, Miss Fallerope. And don't forget the black wings. Even in the wintertime, when the male goldfinch's bright yellow plumage has mostly faded away, those black wings with distinctive white wing bars are still pretty easy to spot. On the female, too. By the way, Santa's reindeer may fly like the down of a thistle, but goldfinches actually use the down of a thistle to line their nests as they raise their families late in the season. Like at the end of June or early July, when the offspring of most songbirds are already in preschool. The American goldfinch is a favorite of many for its beautiful colors, its bounding flight pattern, and the sweetness of its song, like this. The American Goldfinch, this week's Talkin' Birds featured feathered friend. Thanks again for being with us, our show 636. Please do follow us, uh, visit our website there, TalkinBirds.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Talkin' Birds. Well, last week we talked with the Cornell Lab's David Taves about how maps show the distance limits of travel for some birds in migration. Today we'll talk a bit about the maps that birds may create for themselves to figure out how to get to their destinations. To help us with that, we welcome U.S. Geological Survey research geophysicist Dr. Jonathan Hagstrom. Good morning, John. Good morning, Ray. It's great to be with you. We had a great talk the other day about all of uh, this amazing research that you've done and are continuing to do, so we'll uh, shoot for a little condensed version of that today. And as you've described... Birds need a map and a compass to get where they're going, and they have the stars and the sun and geographical landmarks as well as the Earth's magnetic field as the compasses. But you ask, what is the map? How do they know where they are so they can set a compass heading that they can follow? And you suggest the answer may be infrasound. I wonder if you'd tell us what infrasound is exactly and how birds might be using it. Uh, yes. Well, infrasound is the is basically the low frequency sound we can't hear. So it's below our hearing range, whereas ultrasound is above our hearing range, and that's what bats use. But um, 
the question is, has been, you know, and this has been the long-term mystery, is how do they know where they are relative to where they're going in order to set uh, a compass bearing toward home? And um, infrasound is something that uh, we don't hear, but there's a symphony of it going on in the atmosphere that we're completely unaware of. And most of this sound comes from standing waves in the deep ocean. And I believe those standing waves in the deep ocean, are they, they create what are called microbaroms in the atmosphere, while at the same time they create microseisms in the Earth. And so if you put down a seismometer anywhere on Earth, you will pick up what uh, seismologists poetically call the sound of the sea, or the song of the sea, rather. Hmm. And uh, you will hear that uh, through the Earth, and you will also hear it through the atmosphere. But I believe that uh, what makes the most sense with, with what uh, biologists have discovered about what uh, birds are able to do, and particularly homing pigeons, which is what they study, uh, they prefer to study because they're easy to handle, they're already, um, they're already domesticated, uh, they home on demand, you don't have to wait six months for them to get uh, the, the urge to migrate. And um, so they will home, and they will go right back to their, their loft, and they're very accurate at doing this, even if you cover their eyes or, uh, or whatever. They need to see the loft to get into it, but they can get within a couple kilometers or better. Mm. And it seems that what might be happening, what, I, what I'm hypothesizing, is that these microseisms cause the Earth to move up and down very slightly uh, uh, at a period of about uh, six seconds. So it's up and down very, very slowly. This is a frequency of about 0.2 hertz. And over a large area, these very slight movements add up, and I believe that the topography will form a sound that is unique to the loft area, and the birds are able to hear that and return toward that sound. And the one thing about infrasound is it's a very long wavelength, very low frequency, and it travels thousands of kilometers through the atmosphere with very little attenuation. Wow. Compared to the higher frequency sounds, like where our hearing range is, the sounds are attenuated quite rapidly. So we never hear sounds that are more than about 10 kilometers away. Well, it's a pretty amazing story, uh, speaking of pigeons, concerning a scenario that I think gave you kind of a eureka moment happened over the English Channel on June 29th, I think 1998. Would you tell us that story, John? Yes, well, I was, uh, had been thinking about this, and I was really focusing in on infrasound as a, a possible geophysical cue that the, the birds could be using. And I actually read in the local paper about some races in Pennsylvania, actually, that uh, the birds had been released and expected back at lofts all around uh, the Philadelphia area, but at the time they were expected to arrive, no birds showed up. And it was a complete mystery, and that's why it made it into the paper. Uh, you know, everybody was stumped, the weather was fine, and uh, nobody knew what was going on. So um, I told this to a friend of mine who liked to surf the web a lot, and he came up and said, you know, I, I looked about looked that up on the web and I found a number of other instances when this happened in Europe and one was the uh, centenary race of the Royal Pigeon Racing Association uh, in England where they took birds from, from lofts all over England to France to release them on a race that came back across the channel well the same thing happened 
the birds didn't show up when they were expected. And they dribbled in, you know, over days and weeks, and uh, quite a few of them never showed up. And so I looked at all the data from the races in Pennsylvania, the ones uh, back to England. There was another race going back to uh, the Netherlands. And I, I thought, well, if, if infrasound is involved, there had to be some infrasonic source that was disrupting this race. That was what I wanted to test. And to make a long story short, I looked at everything, uh, including, you know, uh, Gettysburg reenactments, <laughs> blasting, whatever I could think of. It tur- Finally, it dawned on me, it was the sonic boom off the Concord. Um, but one of the races from Pennsylvania didn't fit the pattern. The birds had been it would have been the weather had been a little bit iffy, so the 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 organizers decided to drive the the birds back toward uh, their lofts, and they released them. They didn't release them um, until ten o'clock, but the Concorde from Paris that morning would have been in at JFK at nine forty-five. So I was like, "Oh my, this doesn't work." Mm. So I thought about it, and I thought, "Well, I you know did a few calculations about where the birds would have been and the timing, and I realized that." The only explanation was that the plane would have been late that day, but it would have had to have been like two hours late. Mm. So I called up uh, Air France at uh, JFK in New York, and I talked, I'll never forget it, I'll talk to Rob Hasbini. And I asked Rob, I said, Rob, could you look this up? Was the plane late that day? And he said, oh, no, the air, you know, this is the Concorde. It's never late, and it's only three hours across the ocean, so two hours not, you know, just not reasonable. I said, oh, but just please, you know, this is a scientific question. So he told me, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll call me back in a couple hours. I will have ha- I have a, some planes in I have to deal with, and I ha- will have had a chance to look it up. I called him back in two hours, and he said to me, quote, are you a magician? It was two and a half hours late that day. How did you know? And uh, after that, I thought, wow, I think I'm on to something here. Indeed. Well, there's so much more to talk about on, on this, uh, John. I wish we had had some more time, including the fact that you think that maybe humans can take advantage of this way of listening to infrasound. I'd love to hear about that and your further research. So I wonder if we could immediately uh, talk about having you come back on again with us. Oh, that would be fine. We'll certainly uh, I'd love to do it. We'll certainly do it. Dr. Jonathan Hagstrom has worked as a research geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey since 1979. He holds a Ph.D. from Stanford University, an M.S. from University of Michigan, and a B.A. from Cornell University. Joining us here to talk about how infrasound may help birds find their way home. John, thanks so much. You're welcome, Ray. My pleasure. Coming up, our mystery bird contest in just one minute. Hi, it's Ray saying don't look now, but it's late July. That means in just about eight weeks, we'll be going on an unforgettable journey to the Galapagos Islands, a place unlike any other place on Earth and known for vast numbers of creatures found nowhere else on the planet, including the finches studied by Charles Darwin that sparked his theory of evolution by natural selection. We'll travel with Sunrise Birding, widely recognized as one of the finest small group touring companies in the world. I'll be your host, joined by expert local guides who will lead us to and teach us about blue-footed boobies, Galapagos tortoises, marine iguanas, and many other species, including the Galapagos penguins with which we'll snorkel. But don't wait until it's too late. Find out all about this amazing trip right now by visiting sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com. 
Hope to see you in September in the Galapagos Islands. Talking Birds is made part impossible, or made ah, possible yes, in part. Don't look now, but it's late July. Yes, that it is. In, no, it's actually uh, it's early August. Well, we said that incorrectly twice. That's that's not good. We need to update that. Talking Birds is made possible in part by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, a world leader in the study, appreciation, and conservation of birds. Please check them out at birds.cornell.edu. Here's our phone number for the Mystery Bird Contest. It's 781-837-4900. That's 781-837-4900. We have two beautiful prizes uh, for the offing here. The Droll Yankees New Generation Metal Finch Sock Feeder combines the attraction of a finch sock with the durability of metal. And our bonus prize, a big bag of birds and beans, bird-friendly, shade-grown coffee, the kind we drink around here because it is delicious and it really does help save the birds that migrate down into the neotropics there in Central and South America. Here's the sound of, uh, well, a, a flock of our mystery birds on the roost there. Our mystery bird is a large, mostly white, wading bird of the southeastern swamps where it probes for fish up to its belly in water, holding its bill open until it detects a fish or a frog or a tasty insect. Our bird has black flight feathers and a black tail and answers to the name Baldy. Uh, that would be our mystery bird. Tell us what it is or take a guess. No correct answer means a drawing will determine our winner. 781-837-4900 is the number. Meanwhile, we're going to find out a little bit about safflower seed with Mike O'Connor down at the Bird Watchers General Store on Cape Cod. Let's ask Mike in just one minute. Now a word from our friends at Birdwatching Magazine. For over a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. Want some tips on backyard birding? Birdwatching Magazine has published a handy booklet that's yours to download for free. The 16-page guide includes practical field-tested answers to your most important questions about the birds in your backyard, from food to birdhouses, from those cute hummingbirds to those troublemaking birds. Go to birdwatchingdaily.com to get your backyard Q&A booklet. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year illegally. Poaching is a major threat to our country's wildlife. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor with a desire to preserve living space for wildlife. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust does just that. Works with private landowners to protect wildlife to preserve natural habitats. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. It's Let's Ask Mike live. He's down there at the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. He joins us right now. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Ray. Live from Cape Cod today. Where it's beautiful, right? Sunny and not so humid and all that? No, it's 70 degrees. The sun's out, and it's just like it is 365 days a year. Every day. January, February, doesn't matter. It's all the same. As long as you don't go outside, it's the same temperature. <laughs> well, Mike, safflower, Carthamus tinctorius, is a highly branched, herbaceous, thistle-like annual plant, as we all know, but... <laughs> There's more to it than <laughs> that, right? Right out of my mouth. What is it? Uh, what are we talking about? Why are we talking about it? Well, safflower seed, I've been doing a lot of uh, my own backyard tests lately. Hmm. And safflower is a seed that's been heralded as a kind of like a poor man's squirrel baffle, squirrel hmm. proof feeder. Also, a lot of people don't like some of the larger birds, like grackles and stuff, and they kind of advertise it as a way to keep the grackles out. And, and for some people, it works pretty well. As a matter of fact, we sell a fair amount. We probably sell a half a ton of this particular seed 
week, um, and people, some people rave about it. But such is not the case with everyone, including me. I, I, you know, I, I've tried it a number of times, mm-hmm. and whatever they say, squirrels, uh, big birds, house sparrows, doesn't work. I put it out in a tray, and they all come, and they all eat it, and they all work it out. But my customers will argue with me that it's, it's, it's the way to go. So I'm just mentioning this. So if anybody has trouble with, like, gray squirrels and they can't seem to solve the problem or they're getting too many grackles or house sparrows, you should try safflower. Safflower is a hard white seed. It is a small, it's a very hard shell on it that a lot of the birds can't open. Hmm. Um, some birds really, really go out of their way for it, including cardinals, because cardinals have that ginormous beak, and they can snap it open no problem. Hmm. Doves like it. They swallow it whole, and then they grind it up, and they're gizzard later. And, and squirrels, as the, as the theory goes, tends not to like it. So I, hmm. I would try that. Caution, chipmunks. Chipmunks would kill you for safflower. They go out of their way. When we open the door in the morning, they run right past our legs and wow. jump in the barrel and fill up their cheek pouches with it. Well, people love to watch chipmunks, so that's They're, not so no, bad. Most people do. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's fun. And I like to hear the people scream when they go to get some safflower <laughs> out of a barrel and the chipmunk jumps up. So it's worth trying. Uh, my advice is to try it more of a tray. If you put it in a tube, then the birds will kind of dig through the tube looking for something uh, maybe they're more interested in, and a lot of it, the tube will be empty and think, oh, look, the birds ate it all. Now a lot of it might end up on the ground. So I, w- I would experiment with it by putting it out in a tray and evaluate it, and some people will have good luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps if you're like me, you won't, but uh, I think it's kind of a case-by-case situation. But I would definitely give it a try, um, but remember, it's not a repellent. So a lot of people say, well, you know what? I'll put a little safflower and mix it in with other seeds. It doesn't work that way because yeah. the birds will just eat the other seeds. Okay. They use it separately. Separate but equal. All right. Give it a, give it a try. Try it out. That's right. And, Mike, we also know that safflower is one of humanity's oldest crops, and garlands made from safflowers were found in the tomb of King Tut. But we don't have time to talk about that today. Maybe on another program. Yo, that sounds like a really interesting show for another time. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Okay, talk to you next week, Ray. All right, we're back here at the Mystery Bird Contest. Here's a flock of our birds on the roost. 781-837-4900 is the number. 781-837-4900. Our bird is a large, mostly white wading bird of the southeastern swamps where it probes for fish in water up to its belly, holding its bill open until it detects a fish or a frog or tasty insect. Our bird has black flight feathers and a black tail and answers to the name Baldy. 781-837-4900 is the number. Gracie is in Plymouth, Massachusetts, America's hometown. Good morning, Gracie. Hi. Hi. How are you doing, Gracie? I'm doing great today. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And what do you think our mystery bird is, Gracie? Um, I believe it's a wood stork. I believe you're correct. In fact, I'm quite sure of it. <laughs> a wood stork. Absolutely right. Nice work. Hard to find those in uh, Plymouth, but I think they've been seen up here in New England from time to time, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Well, congratulations. We're going to send you that beautiful Droll Yankees feeder. Would you like to try our bonus question for a big bag of birds and beans, shade-grown, bird-friendly coffee? I'd love to. (laughs) All right. There's a multiple-choice question here. Here's a word that applies to birds. What is the meaning of the word nidificate? Is it A, it means to fly in formation? B, it means to give an alarm call? C, it means to build a nest? Or D, it means a person who knits things for Kate, knitter for Kate. I'm going to go with B. 
Uh, B, it means to give an alarm call. Are you sure that's uh, what you want to guess rather than it means to build a nest? Okay, now that it means to build a nest. Okay, I think, I, excellent job there. I'm, we're not hearing any applause here. I don't know why, but we should, there it is. All right. <laughs> excellent job on that bonus question and, of course, on the, uh, on the lead-in question, the main question as well of the Wood Stork. Uh, Gracie, thank you so much. Congratulations, and uh, do stay on the line, and we'll arrange to send all that stuff to you. Thank you. Thank you, Gracie. Woodstork, our mystery bird. And guess what? Yes, we're out of time for today's show. We'll be back here next week. We hope you'll be with us. And please visit our website, TalkingBirds.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Talking Birds. We hope you'll consider becoming a Talking Birds ambassador. Spread the word about our show and about birds and conservation. Easy to do. Just go to TalkingBirds.com. Click on the Contact button and choose to become an ambassador Option. We'll send you some little cards about Talking Birds and uh, take it from there. Thanks to Mark Duffield, Debbie Bleacher, and our engineer, Jesse Wilkins. I'm Ray Brown. We'll see you next week. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans Cape Cod. BirdWatchersGeneralStore.com by L.L. Bean inspiring you to get outdoors LLBean.com by Celestron offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels Celestron.com by Birds and Beans shade-grown bird-friendly coffee BirdsAndBeans.com and by Chimani visiting a national park let Chimani guide you Chimani.com